Well, good morning, Crossing Church. How are you doing today? It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It is good to be with the people of the Lord. It is good to be studying the word of the Lord, applying that to our lives and allowing it to change us, and it will change us forever. Amen? It is so good to welcome all the campuses that are joining with us all across this region, 11 locations, everyone that's inside, everyone that's online. Uh, I've already got a great text today that uh, inside is all back. So uh, I know they've been like open and shut and, and uh, locked down and all sorts of things like that. And I'm just, just thankful to know that the Word of God is going out uh, with all of you as well. That's incredible. And uh, if you're like me, uh, I've been spending a lot of time watching the news because my heart is really going out to the people of Ukraine right now. And of course, uh, from last week to this week, things have really amped up. And uh, uh, things that were frightening me when I was a kid in the 60s, uh, is those things are fomenting again. What I want us to do again today is pray. I want us to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. I want us to pray that uh, uh, God... He's never not in control. He's in control. We just, we just need to rest in Him. So if you're feeling anxiety about it, like I think all of us are to some extent, let's just rest in the Lord and trust in Him because He isn't surprised by anything. Let's just, just take a moment and let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we pray right now for the people of Ukraine. We pray that you would protect them as they're being attacked. Father, I pray that, uh, uh, that you would calm uh, people that are involved and, and that, Father, you would be even glorified in the midst of it. I think about the scripture that says that you'll hear about wars and rumors of wars. And uh, I know that that's associated with the coming of your son. So I just pray, Father, that uh, you would, uh, we would recognize your lordship over this situation, that we would just continue to pray that you'd be glorified, Father, and that your people would be protected. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're in this series called Better, and uh, we're talking about winning at home. And I just want to start with a question, all right? And here's my question. It's kind of a, you know, see if you can figure it out. What do lovebirds, puffins, mice... Albatross, I don't know what the plural is for albatross. I'm just going to say albatross. Coyotes, bald eagles, vultures, beavers, lizards, doves, seahorses, gibbons, cranes, owls, geese, voles, swans, monkeys, pigeons, parakeets, macaws, wolves, angelfish, foxes, penguins, sea turtles, flatworms, and condors have in common. They all mate for life. How many of you got that right? Yeah, see, that's pretty good. And although they only account for a small percentage of all the animals in, in the animal kingdom, it's pretty fascinating. Think about that. How fascinating is it that God pre-wired those particular animal species to do that, to literally mate for life. Do you know that 
is how we were designed. That we were designed by God to mate for life. But unlike animals who consistently act according to their created nature. And I want to stop right there. Do you realize that? Do you realize that everything an animal does, he does because he is acting in, in perfect harmony with his created nature? It is how God created that animal to be. So when you get upset, potty training your puppy, just understand. He's acting according to his created nature. But he makes you act differently than your created nature. So we were designed by God a little bit different than the animals, right? Actually quite a bit different because we were made in the image of God. And God gave us something that is a reflection of him because God, as a sovereign God, has an absolute right to make any choice he wants. And he gave us rights to make choices. And so we can choose not to act according to our created nature. We can choose whether to follow God's plan or not follow God's plan unlike all of those animals. Now, you and I, we were not designed to act like a feral dog or a feral cat. Although some of us have and some of us do. The Bible is crystal clear that we were designed to mate for life. Now, I know right now as I'm speaking, you're saying, oh, Jerry's going to do a sermon on marriage. And half of you are saying, that doesn't really apply to me exactly right now in the, the season of life I'm in. I know that I'm dealing with half of you that are presently married. The other half of you haven't gotten married yet and you want to. You haven't gotten married yet and you don't want to. You'd like to stay single. You have gotten married, but it ended in divorce. And some of you have been separated by death. You've been, uh, you're a widow or a widower. But all of us, regardless of our current situation in life, are connected to this idea of marriage, and it is of critical importance to all of us. And if it's true that we are hardwired by God for this relationship, then let me ask you a question. Why is it so hard? Why are we surrounded with so many tragic stories of like bitter divorce or custody battles, or infidelity, broken homes, scarred and cynical children, blended family struggles with step-parents and step-brothers and step-sisters, one-night stands, sexual regret, a pandemic of pornography, deviant sexual behavior, the victimization of sex trafficking, and child sexual abuse. Why? If this is how we were pre-wired by God, it because marriage is the most basic construct of the human condition and the human community. That's a big statement, by the way. And I'm going to back it up. And if Satan can confuse marriage, if he can confuse that most basic construct, if he can confuse it, if he can twist it, if he can break it, he wins. It's at the root of who we are. That's another big statement. The root of who we are, at least from the perspective of God. Now I want to prove that to you. I want you to think about how the Bible begins. Like when you just open it up, you get past the, 
the faux leather, leather cover and the title pages, where are you? Like, how does the Bible actually begin? Do you know it actually begins with a wedding? So God creates everything, right, in Genesis 1. Talks about how he put it together. And as soon as he puts it together, there's a wedding. Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, oh, thank you, God. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become, would you say that with me? One flesh. Wow. Adam and his wife were both naked. That's, thank you God, right? That was that. And they felt no shame. Bible begins with a wedding. God gave the first bride away. Hmm. You know how the Bible ends? With a wedding. It's in Revelation chapter 1, chapter 21 verses 1 to 4. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. You know, you are his new Jerusalem. You are his temple. Created with living stones. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard... A loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. I go to prepare a place for you. I'll come again, receive you to myself. Where I am, there you may be also. They will be His people, and He Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Just before this in Revelation, it actually talks about the feast, the wedding feast. Is that enough? Nah, let's go a little further. It was the backdrop for Jesus' entire ministry. How did Jesus begin his ministry? I mean, you have these like little stories, a couple of little stories, like when he was 12 and when he was born, you have to have that, but it's all pretty silent until you get to the beginning of his ministry. And the beginning of his ministry was a wedding. It was in a place called Cana of Galilee. He got a little bit angry with his mother because she wasn't, he didn't, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if I want to do this yet. They have no wine. You remember that? And Jesus turned the water into wine. It began his ministry and it was his very first miracle. And it was at a wedding. Do you remember how Jesus ended his ministry on earth? 
He ended his ministry on earth in an upper room. And in that upper room, he started telling his disciples, getting them prepared for what was going to come next. And some of the most profound words he ever said were said in that room when he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Wedding language. What every prospective groom said to a prospective bride. It was the proposal of the Jewish culture. It bookended his ministry. It's the earthly relationship that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God, chose to help us understand the eternal relationship, union, between Christ and his bride, the church. We'll get into that in a minute. So when you look at God's word kind of in totality, you can see that this is a very, very big deal to God, and it's no wonder that it's being attacked. Now I want to I want to get something straight here. This sermon's only going to last about a half an hour, and that's not near enough time for the investment that this requires. And this is something that is so critical for, for all of us uh, to understand, whether we're in, you know, in hard times right now, we're considering marriage right now, we're on the other end of marriage and we want to be able to mentor other people. You know, so Alice and I are going to begin le- leading marriage retreats. It's going to be coming in the fall. And, uh, and it's going to happen in our new retreat center, and that's being built right now, Paul put together right now. And we're going to train other leaders how to do it as well, because this is going to have to be a very major deal uh, for the crossing. And it would be an incredible investment for you. And I, I'll just, if you want to cheat, I'll, I'll, I'll help you, uh, because we're going to be working out of three different books that we're going to have everyone read. Here's the three. One, The Five Languages of Love by Gary Chapman. Some of you may already understand that. One's going to be Love and Respect by Emerson Egricks, and one of them is the one that we discussed last week, Becoming Better Together by Epps. Each one of these has a different approach to understanding and addressing uh, how marriage was designed by God to work. Becoming Better Together was a book about structure, the structure of a relationship and timing of the relationship. And I dealt with that one last week, okay? But today, I'm going to spend time on the other two, but I'm just going to touch on them. So you're going to have to hang on, right? Uh, We're going to spend that little bit of time on the five languages of love. This is an emotional look at marriage and love and respect, which is a classic gender-based biblical look at marriage. So I want us to dive in, okay? So I want to see how many people I relate to right now. After church today, you're going to get in a car, and some of you will go home. But a lot of you are going to go out to eat. And the guy's going to say, where would you like to eat, dear? And what is her answer going to be, gentlemen? I don't know, wherever you'd like to eat. Now listen, I know something about guys. 
They are, three, they are thinking of one word that has three letters, and it is this, eat. Just that. A lot of guys don't really care if it's a taco or a hamburger or something fancy. They just want to eat. Let's just get that one checked off and move on to the next thing, right? But that's not what she's thinking. I'll get to that in a second. I don't know, dear, wherever you'd like to eat. Guys don't have a problem making decisions because they don't get emotionally invested into decision making. They just make one. So you're pulling off to one of the local restaurants. Okay, I'll make the decision. And then she goes, no, I ate there on Tuesday. (laughs) What? Okay. Then where would you like to eat? I don't know. Wherever you'd like to eat. Listen. I've been married to my wife nearly 40 years, and we have gotten so far down this road, she will now tell me, here are four choices you can't make. (laughs) She still won't make the decision, right? Why is that? Why is that? I'll tell you why. I already said guys don't get emotionally invested in decision making because they, they just only think of very small one thing at a time. Women are literally thinking of everything in their life all at the same time. They are thinking three-dimensionally, not two-dimensionally. They're thinking about how, what I have to do with the kids this afternoon. They're thinking about what my house looks like. They're thinking about uh, other things that are necessary. They're thinking about who they might meet and who they don't want to meet that could be at that residence, and a million other things. And that's why it's so hard to make a decision. It's not because they're just indecisive. It's because they're emotionally invested in that decision. Because a lot of things could happen when a guy's thinking what? Eat. Now, I just connected to a whole bunch of you. But there are some of you that went, I don't know what he's talking about. Because I'm talking about a gender stereotype. It's a gender stereotype that we actually get from God's word. But not everyone fits into that stereotype. Let me tell you why I'm saying that. Ephesians 5, 21 to 32. Don't forget this first one. I'll come back to it. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is the whole deal right there. Now, how do we do that? Wives, submit to your husbands, uh, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And you know what, husbands, they just want to end right there. That's just her submission. That's not his submission. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Stop it. How much did Christ love the church? To be nailed to a cross. And I've had a lot of guys upset in their marriage, but I've never seen nail prints in their hands. And gave himself up for her. That means you can make any decision you want, guys, because the husband's the head of the wife, but she has total veto power. Because loving her is more important than your decision. Oh, somebody's going to clap. <laughs> Finally, I got a sermon I connect to. Uh, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, 
Wow, it's talking about spiritual leadership there. And to present her to himself as a radiant church. It's interesting that he calls a woman a church. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for. I feed it too much. Uh, uh, Just as Christ does the church. We're all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. The two will become, say it. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What? I thought he was talking about marriage. Well, he is. Because our earthly marriages are all, tri- are all designed to help us understand our heavenly marriage, the eternal one. Go back to Ephesians 5.21. Because the overall view is mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me help you understand that. I want you to picture here an invisible altar. Okay, like altars in the Old Testament and in the New Testament were made of stone. And what, would, what happened at an altar? An animal was brought and then sacrificed, right, on this altar. So I want you to imagine, have you ever heard people are going to get married, they, get, they go to the altar? Have you heard that before? So what does that actually mean? Well, okay, I'll be the groom. Here I am. There's the altar. Here's everything I am, everything I want to be, every hope, every dream, everything. And I'm walking it over to this altar. Here's the bride. Everything that she is, everything she hopes to be, every hope, every dream, and she brings it to the altar. The altar's burning. And they lay all that is their life on this altar as a burnt offering. Marital love is supposed to be selfless love. Altar of burnt offering love. One flesh love. Because God takes two lives, two hopes, two dreams, two realities, and He forges it into a single one flesh relationship. Only God can do it. Jesus taught it in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. He said, haven't you read? He replied that in the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two. You thought I just made that up? It's poetic. No, it's just Jesus. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's also back in Ephesians verse uh, 31 of chapter 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. We surrender ourselves to each other, and we form one new identity, and it happens under the lordship of Jesus Christ and the power of Almighty God. That's how we form one new identity. 
So, some of you really connecting with what I'm saying because it is classic. And what Ephesians 5 is teaching is classic male-female stereotypes. And you notice what they're asking men and women to do, that, that husbands or prospective husband, husbands have to love their wives and then gives the specific of how they're to love their wives. So it's about love. And a wife has a responsibility of respecting her husband. Let me tell you what that is actually accomplishing. I'm going to write this word, okay, love, and then this one, respect. These two things are mutually edifying. In other words, if a wife is respecting her husband, it should have the uh, effect of empowering him to love his wife. And if a man is properly loving his wife, it empowers her to properly respect her husband. Uh, but we're going to call this the crazy cycle. And I'm going to tell you why. Because it tends to go the other way. It happens to go the other way. So what, what a woman needs generally is emotional security. And there's nothing wrong with that. Women tend to need emotional security. You know why? Because uh, emotional, being emotional is their currency. They give themselves, uh, and they don't do it in pieces or parts. I mean, they, they, they fully invest. And um, they require that. It's like putting, like, it's like, be like you driving your car and uh, you run out of gas and you get mad at your car. Because that's what they run on. And you need to keep it filled up. So if they need emotional security, they receive that through love. If they're convinced that their husband loves them, it, pro it provides for their emotional security. Men, on the other hand, want respect. Do you think a man would rather hear, I love you, or would he rather hear, I feel safe when I'm in your arms? Men tend to love things that project strength, respect. And so there are ways that we have to understand, again, this is stereotypical, but there are ways that we need to understand how this works. And so this is how that mutual edification grows a relationship. But it also goes the other way because if a husband starts loving other things and he just compartmentalizes his love for his wife, what ends up happening? She gets frustrated with that and responds with things like, hey, it'd be nice if you were home once in a while. Be nice if these kids knew that they had a dad, right? Disrespect. Disrespect, what, that, what does that do to a man? It makes him want to replace his wife with something else like bowling, or grilling, or, sorry. You know what I'm saying? Anything else, anything else. And it starts the crazy cycle. Now, the crazy cycle really isn't circular. 
I don't think that's fair. It's actually this. It's <laughs> a because that's what happens. It's a spiral. Because if we don't receive what we need, then we lash out at one another, and they feed on each other, and you start going in circles, but you spiral down until the relationship is utterly broken, right? (laughs) Give me something positive, Jerry. Here it comes. The good news is the crazy cycle is reversible. The spiral is reversible. If someone can start being selfless, even when they don't deserve, the, 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 the partner doesn't deserve selflessness, if they can do that, which is very hard to do, it can reverse the cycle. The crazy cycle can move in the opposite direction. The spiral can go up as well as down. I have a lot more I can say about that, but that's what retreats are for. That's what those that book love and respect is for. So we'll just have to leave it there. Second one, you're not relating to what I said. I've just said all that stuff and it's like, there he goes. This is all that male-female stereotypes and it does not fit me. I get it. Because some of us are wired differently emotionally. And there's a lot of things that go into that. How we might be different emotionally. Could be our roles in culture. Could be generational issues. It could be the lack of two role models because of single parenting. We all have things that contribute to those differences. Okay, We have a lot of differences here. However, each one of us has an emotional love language that's irrespective of gender. And that emotional language is how we understand, how we give, and how we receive love. And that's what we call a, a, a love language, okay? So I'm going to give you the five love languages. The first one is words of affirmation. Words of affirmation. You know what that is? If, uh, if a man's love language is words of affirmation, it's like, you know, it could be uh, sexual in the sense that it's like, you know, gun show today. Like you're, I'm liking that, you know? And a guy's like, yeah. It could be on the other side, could be receiving words of affirmation you're female, like, man, you are defining hot in those jeans, right? It could be other things. It could be like affirmation about what you've accomplished. Like one of you accomplishes something in your career and the other one's like, we got to go out and celebrate because nobody, nobody does that as well as you. You're incredible. At the, this is words of affirmation, right? We got that? Second one, quality time which is not the same as time. Quality time, where you're actually accomplishing something in that time that's focused on your relationship or on your spouse. You know what I'm saying? Let's just, we need to be together. We need to get reacquainted. I remember first time Allison and I went to Israel. Allison was like, I'm not leaving my kids. I'm not leaving my kids. And I I told her, I said, you know the best thing you can do for your kids is give them a good marriage. And we need some quality time. Because what happens? I mean, life happens, right? And then you have to get reacquainted. Quality time does that. Number three. Acts 
of service. Don't you be trying to get with me when those dishes are dirty. Really? Like, what's that got to do with love? Like vacuuming? What's that got to do with it? Yeah, because sometimes that's what we crave. We crave service. Like when we serve one another, that's what it's about. Number four. Physical touch. Physical touch. Physical touch is not always sexual touch. Right? It's, a lot of it has to do with just... Like those people that sat in front of you last week at church, and it's like, would you just stop? You know, like where, where you know they're doing this with the hair on the back of the other person. Like, stop it! You know? And it's because they're communicating, they're actually communicating non-verbally, and that's a love language you're actually experiencing, holding hands when you walk, you know, uh, that, kind of, that kind of thing where there's actually touch involved. You know, it isn't not necessarily sexual, but it can be sexual. Last one. Gifts. And it's not if you love me, buy me a Lamborghini. It, it can be something simple. Like I can tell you in my marriage, if my wife's love language is not gifts at all. She's a minimalist. But if I am going to give her something, it needs to have sentimental value. It needs to, it needs to convey a story. Like we were just cleaning out our closets, you know, and our kids have given gifts over the years. She can't ever throw any of those away. She can't do it. So these have nothing to do with gender stereotypes. This is hitting everybody because we're all this way. And every, every one of you has a primary and a secondary love language. So this is why this is such a big deal. Ready? It's a big deal because some marriages are soulmates. Do you know what I mean by soulmates? It's like you like all the same things. These are the people that you see and they like buy clothes so they can dress alike. I want to throw up when I see that. But some people are that way. I mean, they're just soulmates. Like you say, so how are you doing in your marriage? Like, we, we, I don't even try to talk about it. We never argue ever. I'm like, boring. Right? These are people that tend to have the same love languages. But most marriages are opposites attract. And I'm going to amend that a little bit. It's not necessarily opposites. It's differences. Differences attract. And uh, these describe different love languages. So you're gonna, you might marry someone that is not at all like you, not wired like you, understands, gives, and receives love different than you, and you're trying to speak love to that person in your own language, and it's impossible to understand because you're speaking two different languages, you're not fluent in that language, and it can have a profound impact on your marriage relationship. Here again, there's so much more to say about that. That's what retreats are for. That's what that book is about, okay? That's what Five Languages of Love is about. In any case, God's design, think about this, His fingerprints are all over these things. There is a profound spiritual reality to love and marriage and how it relates to an experiential understanding of our relationship with Jesus. That's why that, last, that scripture in Ephesians says, but I'm speaking of Christ in the church. 
Because what it does, it shows you the physical, emotional, chemical, and spiritual realities profoundly. We're going to school in a marriage about how we're supposed to be in relationship with Jesus. And it's amazing how strong your marriage can be. If you have a spouse where both of you are committed to each other with a solid spiritual foundation, an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you have a good understanding of how you're wired emotionally and physically and a realization of how much Satan is attempting to destroy it, you can not only have a successful marriage, you can have a compelling marriage. A compelling marriage is one that other people look at and they're like, I want that. I'd like to have a marriage like that. But how do you start? Well, I want to challenge you today. I want you to find a place to eat. Oh, great. Well, that'll be the end of that. Where would you like to go? I don't know. Wherever you want to go, great. So if you can survive that, I want you to ask each other some questions. Maybe just one question. Which approach did you connect with? Like, Quit telling a, a person about what you ask. Ask a question. Which one connected with you? Which one of those love languages are you? Did the biblical biblical model work with you from Ephesians? What about that relationship attachment model that Jerry talked about last week? How about that? Start the conversation there. Try to guess each other's love language. Ask each other if they fit the stereotype. Ask if we have things in the right order and the volume levels are at the right place. Buy a book. Read it together. Invest. Make it a part of your date night. Have a date night. Don't give up. Pray together. Take a step, just a step, and take it now. I'm going to call all of our campus pastors up at all of our locations because we're moving to a time of decision. Whether you're in this room or you're, you're watching online right now, he referred to a step. Jerry said, take a step any step. And I know, again, I know what you're probably thinking. There's a whole bunch of different people here, different stories. You guys are in in, in different parts of your life. But I'm telling you, there's a step that you can take today that'll draw you closer to Jesus. Let me just talk to you, to the first group of people in here. There's a group of people in here, you've been searching for true love. You've You've been searching for peace You've been searching for acceptance, and you've been trying to find that in a person. And I want you to know that today, in this moment, you can find that inside an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus absolutely adores you, loves you, cares for you, accepts you, and it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you did right before you came into this church. He looks at you, and he says, You are mine. He shows us what love is, a love that we definitely don't deserve. And he says, you can have it. And you can can claim that truth today. You can leave here today, stop searching the world to find it because it's found in a relationship with Jesus. And if you've never started it, you've never experienced true love before, but you can today. Just call in the name of Jesus just a little bit, there's going to be someone right over here, one of our pastors, right by the baptistry, and they'd love to help you make that step of faith. There's actually one person taking that step today. You wouldn't be alone. 
You can say, I believe. I submit my life to Christ. And you can experience that true love today. If you're online, you can simply just type in, I'm ready. And a chat host would love to help walk you through what it looks like to, to walk in that relationship with him. And I would encourage you to do that. That's the very best step you could take today. The next group of people, man, I want to talk to is, if you're married in this room, listen, if you're not, I'm going to get back to you in just a bit. But if you're married, and your step is, we made it a, an intentional step for you to take today. Up here at our steps, and if you're online, you can just go to crossing.net forward slash family and you'll find this. But up here is a packet. And maybe your first step, and just a little bit when the music starts, is just to take your spouse by their hand, walk up to the steps, grab one of these, get on your knees and pray over it. And what's inside of this is going to help you succeed in a date night. There's eight different cards that you would open uh, on this one night, and you would just go through it. The first one, like Jerry said, is just picking a spot to go eat, and then it'll progress throughout dinner. This may be a tool that can turn your marriage around. It could be a tool that continues to invest in your marriage, to keep it going strong. I don't know where you're at, but I believe, man, if we can do this as a church, if we can get serious about taking a step, what can, what, what can God do through that? I can't wait to find out all the married couples in just a little bit when you come forward and you pray. Listen, some of you, your spouses are not sitting next to you. Maybe your step is coming to grab one of these and praying for your spouse by name, getting on your knees, humbling yourself, and just saying, Lord, I don't know how he or she will take this, but I'm going to take this challenge as well. And you can have some incredible, incredible conversations over dinner. But maybe you're not married. Here's what I want you to know. Listen, this actually can be for you too because you have relationships some of you grandparents, you have a, a son or a daughter or a grandchild you can take to dinner. You could take one of these challenges inside of it and just replace the word spouse and just invest in that relationship. God can take a lot of ground in that relationship. And you know, I think those five love languages, you can actually accomplish all five over this date. If you think about it, all five of them can be fulfilled in just this one time where you get together with your spouse your loved one, your friend. But as always, you could. Here's an option. When we start singing, you, you could just stay still. You could. You could just say, man, that's, our marriage is good or our marriage is past um, help. We can't, we can't do anything else. You could just say, I, I'm good. But I believe we're a church that moves. I believe we're a church that just wants to take these steps. And here's what we want to do. We want to move out of our seats and let God do what only God can do. So I hope you're with me. Let's stand to our feet and let's just give God all of this right now in this moment. Let's take a step. Heavenly Father, you are our firm foundation. You are our solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand. So God, in this moment, we just offer up whatever relationship we need to offer up in this moment. God, if it's a, a marriage, I pray for those spouses, God, that they would, they would relate to what, what you say in your word, some of these incredible resources that we talked about today. But God, I pray that the spouse would take a step today, that marriages would be restored and healed today. That in your name, Jesus, you can do even more than we ask or imagine. Lord, if it's a relationship that just needs investment in, 
I pray that you do what, that, what, what you can do in that, in that relationship, Lord. But as we sing these songs, I pray that we're a church that moves, a church that responds, a church is saying, I'm not okay with where I came in at. I want to draw closer to you and invest in these relationships. So God, let us be a church that moves. In Jesus' name, amen.